Hello, I wanted to take a moment to thank you for listening and also to explain why you might hear ads like this before, during, or even after an episode. We're a small but mighty team here at Realm, and to help fund our shows, we promote products or services that we think you'd enjoy from a variety of sponsors. If any of our ads interest you, one of the best ways to support us is by visiting the link or using the promo code in the ad. It's pretty much a win-win since you can get some great deals and we can keep making awesome shows like this one. You can also visit realm.fm slash partners for more information about our sponsors and how to access the different promotions. Thanks again for joining us in our corner of the universe. Listen away. Contained herein are the heresies of Radolf Buntwine, erstwhile monk-turned-traveling medical investigator. Join me as I uncover the blasphemous truth of a plague-ridden world. That ours is not a loving God, and we are not its favored children. The Heresies of Radolf Buntwine, coming January 2nd, wherever podcasts are available. Realm Presents Bookburners, Season 4, Episode 11. One. Loosen your grip. You're swinging that sword like it's a club. If the Maitress had left me a silver-plated club, I'd be using that instead. Sal would have found it hilarious that Liam, of all people, was critiquing her sword-fighting technique if it hadn't been so damned annoying. It wasn't like he'd had any training beyond the YouTube video she'd caught him watching in the middle of the night. And the shambling heaps of moldering produce emerging from the dumpster behind the local Tesco hardly demanded the fencing skills of the dread pirate Roberts. A sword is a tool of finesse, not butchery. These are plants, it's not butchery. Well, they had started out as plants. Really, they should have brought machetes. Sal lopped off a protruding lobe and watched a dark substance ooze out in a steady flow. Icor? Was that what Icor was? Regardless, the sliced-off bit fell to the pavement and lay there, inert and stinking. Hey, Liam, are these all connected? Liam paused his attempt to batter a blob of moldy cabbages and pulled a knife out of his pocket. He scraped the blade across the stringy tendrils that trailed back to the dumpster. The pile of cabbages collapsed. Looks like it. He paused. This means someone's gonna have to go into the dumpster and slice through whatever's at the center of this, doesn't it? Technically, this is your op, said Sal. The call had come in through Liam's ghost-busting business. You should claim the glory of the final kill for yourself by right of seniority. Or I could use my seniority to appoint you dumpster slayer-in-chief. You could, but know that if you do, I will take all possible glory. There will be none left for you. None. Keep talking like that, and I won't dive in after you when you need someone to save your arse. Sal hacked herself a path to the edge of the dumpster and climbed up to stand on one half of the lid. Something banged beneath her feet, trying to throw her off. She looked into the open side and kind of wished she hadn't. You won't let me die, she told Liam. Yeah, why not? Because Grace would kill you in your sleep. True, now quit stalling and jump. Sal rolled her eyes, held her sword with one hand, pinched her nose with the other, and jumped. The trigger for this particular London hotspot was, to Sal's mild surprise, 
a book. Namely, a paperback copy of Animal Farm with so many notes and underlines that Sal guessed it must have been thrown into the nearest rubbish heap as soon as its owner had completed the exam on it. Maybe the imperfect vegetables had started reading it as they rotted in the dumpster and decided to try their hand at collective living. It made as much sense as anything else these days in London. When shutting the book didn't make a dent in the vigor of the local flora, Sal stabbed it through the cover with the tip of her sword. It shuddered until she gave the blade a vicious twist, at which point the book exploded in a burst of light and a truly horrifying amount of slimy vegetable matter. By the time Sal climbed out of the mess, a small crowd had gathered. Maybe not as large as it would have been a few weeks ago, certainly not as large as it would have been before the incident, as people now called it inside the city. A few Tesco employees were already putting up cones and wondering aloud if decontamination meant that they wouldn't have to come in for work the next day. The city had hastily assembled divisions to clean up after particularly nasty magical hotspots. Bleach might not be proof against magic, but it could definitely help with the residue it left behind. Sal sniffed her hair as she boosted herself up to the lip of the dumpster. It was grown out, so it was just long enough to fall in her face, but not quite long enough to be able to pull back. She would have to decide soon if she was going to grit her teeth through the annoying in-between stages until she had long hair again. Or find a hairdresser she liked in London and keep it short. In three years, she'd never found one in Rome. Sal banished hair worries to the status of secondary concern as she spotted Grace slicing through the crowd. She reached her side just as Sal slid to the ground. Grace leaned in for a kiss and just as quickly withdrew. God, you stink. Liam pushed me into a dumpster full of animated, rotting vegetables. From somewhere behind Sal, Liam shouted back, I did not. Do you want me to kill him in his sleep? Grace asked. No, Father Manchu would give you his I am very disappointed look. That's true. Sal sighed and coughed a bit as she caught a whiff of herself. God, I stink. Yes, said Grace, but I love you anyway. She leaned in again. This time, their lips met. It turned out when you really concentrated on kissing, you didn't need to breathe that much. When they broke apart, Sal turned triumphantly to Liam. See? All the glory, all of it. Liam sighed. Get a room, he said, preferably one with a lot of running water in it. Sal couldn't think of a single flaw in that plan. Between on-site cleanup and giving her statement to the authorities, it was late by the time Sal got back to HQ, and even later by the time she had her much-needed shower and thorough shampoo. Concentrating more on toweling her hair dry than watching where she was going on her way back to her room, she didn't see Perry until she nearly ran into him. He was standing in front of a closed door, staring at the knob like he'd forgotten what to do with it, which made Sal's heart hurt, because it was entirely possible that he had. He gave no indication he'd noticed she was there, even though she'd stopped only inches from him. Sal kept her voice low, not wanting to startle him. Hey, Perry, she said. For a moment, he didn't respond, and Sal worried that he had lost not just doorknobs, but words. But at last, he said, hey, Sal. He cleared his throat. How long have I been here? I don't know, I was just coming back from the bathroom. He looked at her then, taking in the t-shirt and yoga pants she slept in, her wet hair, the damp towel. You can't wash off the magic. Maybe not, but at least I can wash off the smell.
he smiled. It was her brother's expression, but a smile he hadn't used since they were teenagers. You can try, Stinkface. He had been doing that more lately, losing the thread, then picking it back up again from an entirely different moment of his life. Every time it happened, Sal's heart broke a little more. She was watching her little brother go senile, and he was only in his 20s. She tried to smile back, but she could tell he wasn't buying it. There were so many things she should tell him before it was too late, if it wasn't too late already. Instead of any of them, though, she said, are you looking for your room? No, I, I think I was going to see uh, Santi. Sal nodded. Okay, then let's go find her together. Perry scowled. Don't talk to me like I'm a child. He sounded like a petulant teenager again, but his anger was easier to face than his confusion. More familiar. They'd fought for so long over petty things that shouldn't have mattered. Sal rolled her eyes and joined him where he was. Then don't get lost, booger breath. If this was the brother she had left, she would take what she could get. Staring at it won't make it burn slower. Trust me, I've tried. Sal turned to see Grace watching her from the doorway. She felt her cheeks color in embarrassment, feeling irrationally like Grace had caught her at something. But of course she hadn't. They shared a bedroom. Living with Grace meant living with her candle. It was only natural that Sal would look. She pushed any thoughts about her dying brother and her girlfriend's measured mortality firmly to the back of her mind and covered her embarrassment with a question. You can burn faster but not slower? Grace nodded. Asante and I did some experiments when I first joined the team before she lost interest in Project Grace. She thought it had something to do with the linear nature of time. Sal's expression must have looked as blank as she felt. Think of time as a river, and each one of us is a boat moving with the current. When we all move together, it's like we're not moving at all. I can move faster, use more of my time than the world, and the rest of you will catch up. But if I try to go slower than the current... Sal tried to picture what she was describing. From our perspective, it would look like you were moving backwards. And that would have created a paradox or something else not good, or just give everyone a headache because it would be so confusing. I got the metaphor, but the explanation was a little fuzzy. Anyway, I can't do it. A pause. Does it bother you? The candle? Sal asked. Yes. Sal paused. Grace had insisted that they didn't have enough time to lie to each other, but the answer wasn't as simple as yes or no. If you didn't have it, you would probably have been killed by that Russian, Antopov. Even if you'd survived him, you wouldn't have wound up in the packing crate where Father Manchu found you, which means you wouldn't have joined the society or been on Team 3, and we never would have met. Without the candle, there is no us. And I'm glad there's an us. But it's a bit intense to watch my life get shorter every day. I knew I signed up for that. Day to day, it's more the little things that I'm still getting used to. Grace frowned. Little things like what? Sal squirmed. Well, you get cold at night. I mean, if I wake up at two in the morning and the candle is out and you're beside me, you're cold. And it's like, it's like you're dead. And sometimes your eyes are still open a little slit because the candle went out before you got them closed all the way. And I know that leaves your eyes all gummy in the morning, so I slide them shut, and... Sal struggled to finish her thought. Grace sat quietly, the 
candle burning away. And I feel like I'm practicing for when you really are dead. And I have to do that and you're not going to wake up again. Grace slid in to sit beside Sal on the bed, arm curling around her shoulders. I'm sorry. It's not your fault. Like I said, I don't get you any other way. Maybe we should go back to having separate rooms. Sal shook her head. No, I like sharing a bed. I like snuggling with you. I love that you trust me enough to let me see you that vulnerable. That you know I'm gonna light the candle again in the morning and that I won't, I don't know, draw a dick on your face while you're asleep. I saw that in a movie once. Do people really do that? You know what I mean. Grace lay down, pulling Sal with her. Sal felt Grace curl against her back, even though she was usually the big spoon. Do you want me to put it out? Sal asked. I can blow it out from here. Grace's breath was warm against Sal's ear. After you're asleep. You don't have to use your time waiting for me. I don't mind. Grace waited until she was sure that Sal was sleeping soundly before she slid from the narrow bed. Outside, in the crisp autumn night, she let her feet pace as restlessly as her thoughts, breath smoking in the glow of the streetlights. She stopped by the bank of the Thames to watch the pink water flow inexorably to the sea. She ignored the shrill protest of her conscience that this was a decadent indulgence, unworthy of her time. That feeling wasn't hers. It was the legacy of years under the thumb of the Vatican. She remembered a priest, not Arturo, explaining to her earnestly, Your life is special. Your time is precious. It should only be used for precious things. Why had it never occurred to her that she might be a precious thing? Asking herself questions she already knew the answers to. Now there was an unworthy use of her time. Does she make you happy? Grace flinched at the familiar voice. A moment later, Hilary Sansoni stepped out of the shadows to join her at the rail. I always wondered what you would do with your time, if you had the choice, she said. What are you doing here? Grace asked, looking for someone to do your dirty work again. Sansoni didn't answer at first, watching the water instead. Grace was ready to walk away when she said, For the record, I hope she does. Happiness is hard to come by. And personally, I always thought you deserved better than one day off a year. If you objected professionally, I never heard about it. Because I never did. Sansoni met Grace's eyes without a trace of guilt. To answer your question, the society has a problem. When I told Fox I had a possible solution, he was wise enough not to ask for details he would be happier not knowing. As for my dirty work, this probably qualifies. But you should say yes anyway. Why? According to my sources, the Angstroms are attempting to procure an artifact of power hidden in the Himalayas. I think you'll agree that the world would be a better place if your team got to it first. Don't you have a new Team 3 to take care of things like that? A grimace. Unfortunately, this object is in a mountain that is a part of the disputed border between Bhutan and Tibet. The last piece of the puzzle clicked into place. And the Chinese are still blocking the society from entering the country. What makes you think they'll let us in? No reason. But if you're caught, the Vatican will disavow your group, and given our recent history, there's a chance the Chinese government will actually believe we mean it. Well, isn't that fucking heartwarming? 
Liam observed to no one in particular as Grace relayed Sansoni's reasoning to the rest of the team. She had woken Sal and the others as soon as she returned, and they gathered around cups of tea in the school's canteen. Asante looked even less pleased, although for different reasons. I assume that if we find this object of power for the society, Sansoni expects us to hand it over? Grace shook her head. She said no. They'll take it off our hands if we want to give it to them, but she didn't insist. What is she getting out of it then? Asked Menchu. Maybe she thinks keeping this object, whatever it is, away from the Angstroms is advantage enough, said Francis. I can't argue with that, Liam agreed. He snuck a look at Francis, who gave him a small smile, then turned to Grace. Does Sansoni have any information for us that's, I don't know, actually useful? Grace shook her head. She had pressed Sansoni for all the details she had, which had been depressingly sparse. She offered this, though. From her jacket pocket, Grace removed a piece of paper with a set of coordinates and a time. According to Sansoni, there's a plane leaving for Kathmandu from that location tomorrow. She checked her watch and corrected herself later today. There are four seats for us on it. After that, she'll see what she can do, but we should anticipate that we'll be on our own. Francis' tentacles made a soft ticking sound as she drummed them on the floor. She said, there's no love loss between me and the society, but I don't disagree that keeping a powerful artifact away from the Angstroms is a good thing. And the thought occurs that having someone like Sansoni owing us a favor might be very useful someday. Slow nods around the table. Manchu's hand brushed Grace's. What do you think? He asked her. Grace felt the weight of six people's worth of expectations. She felt the warmth of Sal's support at her back. I think we should take the job. You may not be on an elite team of investigators fighting the dangers of magic, but that doesn't mean you have to be defenseless when it comes to protecting your data online. Lucky for you, our partners at NordVPN know their way around the World Wide Web. VPN stands for Virtual Private Network, which creates a sort of encrypted tunnel while you're online, protecting your private data like bank details and passwords, so you can browse safely wherever you are in the world. In addition to providing you with a high level of security online, my favorite use of NordVPN is to virtually switch my location, so I can watch movies and shows that aren't currently available in my area. Plus, that way I can still access my favorite content when I'm traveling as well. I'm a fan of pretty much any British TV show, but they aren't always available in the US, so with NordVPN, I can virtually travel across the pond to enjoy my telly. NordVPN is also the fastest VPN in the world, and you can get all that speed, protection, and virtual locations for the price of just a coffee a month. To get the best discount off your NordVPN plan, go to nordvpn.com bookburners. Our link will also give you four extra months on the two-year plan. There's no risk with Nord's 30-day money-back guarantee. We can imagine many potential futures. Some serve as inspiration, others, warnings. Wondery offers one possibility of the future in their new show, The Last City. The year is 2072, and the city of Pura stands as a miraculous green haven. Pura is a geo-engineered paradise that protects fortunate residents from the global catastrophes of heat domes, fires, floods, and droughts. 
Demetria Lopez heads up Pura's public relations, tirelessly promoting the city's idyllic image. But when she stumbles upon a dark secret that, if exposed, would be the downfall of Pura's existence, she must decide who and what she's willing to protect. From Wondery, the makers of Academy and Dr. Death, The Last City stars actors Ray Seahorn, Jeannie Tirado, and Maury Sterling. Follow The Last City on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can binge all episodes of The Last City early and ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus. Two. Sal frowned at the map spread out on the table in the school library. We have to cover both sides of the border. There's no way around it. Liam examined the map. Well, that means splitting up in Kathmandu. From his corner of the table, Perry looked up. Don't split the party, he muttered. Sal wondered if he was following their conversation at all or if they'd just hit a verbal trigger. Still, he wasn't wrong. I don't think we have a choice, Sal said. It will be hard to search in Bhutan. Francis observed. Mountaineering is illegal. Could indicate the Engstroms are going to make their approach on the Tibetan side, said Liam. Or it could indicate that they don't care any more about Bhutanese laws than they do about laws anywhere else, said Sal. Liam snorted. I bet Pavel wishes he cared more about French laws right about now. That even won a smile from Grace. Sal and I should go to Tibet, she said. We'll be going in unofficially, but if we do have to deal with the government, better to have someone who speaks Mandarin. It won't necessarily make the Tibetans more friendly, Manchu pointed out. Grace shrugged. If someone asks, Sal and I will both be American tourists, come to backpack, to find enlightenment, or nature, or whatever the hell Americans do when they go to Tibet. Sal's laugh came out as a snort. We'll work on your cover story on the plane. And so, by process of elimination, Manchu and Liam found themselves on a very nice Trocair flight from Kathmandu to Paro Bhutan. Manchu enjoyed the spectacular views during the short hop through the Himalayas. Liam slept through the entire trip. Less than 24 hours after Grace had shaken him awake, Manchu was in a part of the world that hadn't yet been open to foreign visitors in the year of his birth. Their guide, Tashi Sanke, met them at the airport. He was pleasant and well-scrubbed, as guides tended to be in Manchu's experience. He was also a requirement for their visit. Foreign visitors were charged a fee for every day they spent in Bhutan, which covered their food, lodgings, transportation, and a guide. It was a refreshingly transparent effort to keep the isolated kingdom from being overrun by tourists in search of the last Shangri-La. As the route took them over twisting roads with views of virgin forests and unclimbed peaks in all directions, Manchu couldn't help but think that maybe the Bhutanese were onto something. Tashi Sange turned his attention from the road as they reached a brief section that was both flat and straight. I've arranged for your hotel for tonight in Paro, but I have been told that you have not yet decided your itinerary. We should make the necessary arrangements as soon as possible so that you can enjoy your visit to the fullest. Liam and Manchu exchanged a glance. No words were necessary when Liam's expression so eloquently said, talking to people is your department, father. And so it was, although he could hardly say, we'd like to discreetly follow some very rich Swedes, if any happened to be in your country. Then again, they knew that the Engstroms were looking for an artifact of power. They had no idea where or what, but that was no reason not to start with the obvious. Actually, we could benefit from your advice, said Manchu. We would like to see the most magical things in your country.
To reach Tibet from Kathmandu had once been an arduous overland trek. For Grace and Sal, it was a matter of hiring a taxi at the airport. Then, after a two-hour drive, a hundred-dollar fare, and a few tense minutes as a border official squinted over Grace's Chinese face and Vatican passport, they walked across the Friendship Bridge. Have you ever been to Tibet before? Sal asked once they were safely across. Grace shook her head. Lhasa was more than 4,000 kilometers by road from Shanghai. These jagged, snowy peaks had nothing in common with the sea and steaming summers of her youth. Have you? Sal laughed. I watched a documentary about someone who died on Everest once. Does that count? Everest is on the border, and most climbers approach from Nepal. Pretty sure that answers your question, then. They called it the Tiger's Nest, and if it wasn't the most magical place in Bhutan, Manchu certainly couldn't blame anyone for making the error. Winded from the steep climb, he told himself he was panting due to the altitude. He had grown up in the mountains, surrounded by old men who walked trails twice this steep twice a day with heavy packs. Of course, he was a decade older than those old men had been. He wondered if he had been wrong to think of them being old then, or to think of himself as being young now. Possibly both. Liam appeared at his elbow as Menchu took in the view. You really think we're going to find any angstroms up here? Do you have a better place for us to look? Liam looked uncomfortable. You're a priest. Don't you get in trouble for spending too much time hanging out in pagan temples? Menchu shrugged. The thought had never occurred to him. Some say Guatemalan Catholicism is merely paganism with an overlay of Jesus. Why does being here bother you? Irish Catholicism doesn't give me a lot of ways to deal with this many carved dicks right out in the open. Menchu had been to Ireland more than once. He couldn't argue. Not that the temple was festooned with phalluses, but there had been some very striking displays back in town. And the fact was, while the temple was impressive, it appeared to be completely free of both the angstroms and obvious artifacts of power. On the walk back down, Menchu asked Tashi Sanke a question triggered by Liam's observation. This is one of the holiest sites in Bhutan. Does it bother you that it has also become a tourist attraction for non-believers? If their guide was bothered, he hid it very well. The site is holy to all visitors, whether they believe or not, he said. It is the same with your Vatican, no? Manchu was still pondering that question that evening when Tashi Sange brought them to a local festival that had taken over most of Aparo Street. In fairness, the street did not appear to have put up much of a fight. The Vatican was the center of Manchu's faith, and he had lived there for more than a decade. Did it still feel holy to him? Had it ever? Many clergymen considered a posting in Rome to be the pinnacle of their calling, but Manchu had never been politically ambitious for all that Sansoni had tried to turn him into a politician. His work with the society had been challenging, fulfilling, exciting, even enjoyable. But the more he thought about it, the more a pesky doubt emerged. Was joining the society part of my vocation, or did I merely follow the path that presented itself? Manchu caught himself pulling at his collar, rubbing uncomfortably against his neck. Now was not the time for a spiritual crisis. It was a beautiful evening. The men in masks were performing an elaborate dance. He was about to ask about the significance when he felt his blood run cold. The dancers wearing masks were changing. 
Men dressed to represent animals, demons, and saints were gradually but obviously assuming the forms of the masks they wore. Liam, are you seeing this? Yes, said Liam. Manchu's mind raced. He wished they weren't so far from the rest of the team. He needed to call Asante, see if her orb was flaring, if she had any idea what might be causing this and how they could put a stop to it before the entire town, perhaps the entire country, was overrun. Any minute now, the crowd would notice panic. Manchu looked over at their guide. He was watching the dance, clapping and singing along with the music. Itashi Sange, Manchu whispered, urgent. Do you see them changing? Oh, yes, he said. You're lucky to see such dedicated dancers. Manchu blinked. Does this happen often? The monks say it's because of what happened in London. Did you hear about the dragon that came out of the river there? Uh, yes, <laughs> the city still isn't the same. Of course the city is the same, said Tashi Sange. The magic has always been here. It's just easier to see now. The dance came to an end, and in the space of an eye blink, the dancers were men in masks once again. Manchu closed a hand on Liam's arm, suddenly unsure of his footing. This wasn't the vaunted mysticism of the East. Magic had come, passed through, and passed on. The crowd went about its business. The dancers appeared unharmed. I'm gonna follow them, said Liam. Find out what hotel they're staying in. What? The demons are staying in a hotel? Follow who? He asked. Liam squinted at Manchu, then pointed to a cluster of tourists on the other side of the square. The three figures, tall and blonde, would have stood out anyway, but their conspicuous wealth left little doubt as to their identities. It was Pavel Engstrom and his parents. Sal's legs were going numb from the hours she'd spent sitting cross-legged on cushions, rugs, even bare ground. She had drunk more mugs of yak butter tea than she liked to contemplate. She had thought England was the epitome of a society devoted to polite tea drinking. She had been wrong, very wrong. The old woman sitting across from her and Grace was telling them a story, a very long and involved story. It was beautiful, really. It had a monk trying to achieve enlightenment, a journey into the mountains, even a magic rice bowl. Sal tried to keep her expression focused and respectful. Difficult when her bladder was about to burst. Also, the story was exactly the same as the one printed on the placemats at their hostel. Assuming that the spoken version did not have a lengthy epilogue, they were about halfway through. It had taken quite a bit of persistence to get the old woman to talk to them, and Sal was pretty sure it would be intensely disrespectful to either leave or wet herself in the middle of the recitation. She tried to focus on something that was not her bladder. Like Grace. Out of the corner of her eye, Sal could see Grace's hand resting easily on her knee. Her nails were perfect, trimmed short, and buffed to a high shine. Sal wanted to run her fingers over them. She wondered if doing so would offend the kind, albeit long-winded, old lady. Sal knew how to deal with homophobes back home. Here, was being gay illegal in China? Did Tibet count as part of China as far as gayness went? Sal couldn't remember. And she hated that it was something she had to know and hated that she cared. But she kept her hands to herself. Eventually, the story ended. Back in the cool sunshine of the Tibetan autumn, and after a very necessary pit stop, Sal gave Grace a squeeze, even though she didn't feel like hugging her right then, and Grace wasn't big on PDAs, because screw the haters. 
So I'll discreetly check their surroundings, and no one seemed to care. Sal was almost annoyed, then relieved, then annoyed that she was relieved. Grace gave her a side hug back, and Sal felt better. I think you're going to have to take the lead, she told Grace. Why? Because if there are legends about whatever it is that the Angstroms are after, I'm pretty sure they haven't been translated into English. It's cute that you think they've been translated into Chinese. On the corner, a man was busking, singing along as he played a stringed instrument Sal couldn't identify. Grace dropped a few coins into the basket at his feet, and he nodded his thanks. As they passed, the song shifted, and Grace paused, turned. What is it? Sal asked. I'm not sure, said Grace, but I want to hear that song again. Liam wove his way through the festival crowd, cursing his stature, his red hair, his beard. Most of his tattoos were covered, but that was a small help in a country where he stuck out almost as badly as his targets. Still, there were just enough Western tourists that Liam thought he might pass unnoticed, until Pavel smiled and waved at him. Look, mother, it's the book burners. Three. Manchu was still not entirely sure how he found himself sitting in an overstuffed chair in a highly polished bar in the most expensive hotel in Padro with Liam, Pavel, and Pavel's parents, Karen and Sven. Both were elegantly preserved and well-coiffed, and Manchu wondered what their actual ages were. They looked to be in their 60s, but he'd met members of the Market Arcanum who looked like they were barely out of school, who claimed to have served in the Great War. Really, it's too much, said Pavel. You have got to be the most incompetent stalkers I've ever had. I don't know why my sisters were so worried about... His father said something sharp and Swedish, and Pavel fell silent. Karen gave Manchu a warm smile. Children should be seen and not heard. Manchu returned a smile of his own, just as calculated as the one she had offered, he suspected. To be fair, neither of us have ever been known for our clandestine talents. He raised his glass to Pavel. I hope I would not be rude to congratulate you on no longer being an involuntary guest of the French government. Pavel scowled and clunked his cocktail down on the table, but said nothing. His mother made an airy gesture, as though springing her son from prison was a trivial matter. Perhaps it had been. A small misunderstanding. In the end, everyone agreed that Pavel would be best off under our supervision. But thank you for your concern. Liam didn't try to hide his grin. Grounded? A tough break, mate. You sure prison wasn't the better deal? Pavel glowered and looked as though he was about to reply, but stopped short of opening his mouth which was when Manchu realized with a shock that the young man's lips were sealed to each other. Karen caught Manchu's expression and correctly interpreted its cause. It's only temporary. Half an hour, an hour and a half at most. We won't let him starve. In this family, sealing the mouth of your grown son was apparently a normal thing to do when you were tired of hearing him talk. So, may I ask what brings you to Bhutan? Rather out of your usual jurisdiction, isn't it? Manchu took a sip of his beer and shunted his horror at the Engstrom's actions to a corner of his brain where he could deal with it later. He might not have been on Team 3 because of his talent for covert surveillance, but that did not mean he was without skills. We are no longer in the employ of the Vatican, he said, but you knew that, I'm sure. Karen exchanged a glance with her husband. We know that's what you want the world to believe. 
But if you're not with the society, why are you here stalking my son? I've never been to this part of the world, Menchu said truthfully. As I grow older, the idea of Shangri-La becomes more appealing. Also, we heard you were looking for a magical artifact of great power. The Swedish matriarch's laughter rang like bells. He suspected that more than one man had done terrible things to hear her laugh like that, or had listened to that laugh as terrible things were done to him. Oh, you are a delight, she said when she had her breath back. And you have come to find out what it is and take it from us? Or convince you not to take it in the first place? Spare us, Sven broke in. The society was always the most retrograde organization in Europe, and that entire continent will keep us in the 15th century if given half a chance. And it's not like we're stealing it, said Karen. Does it belong to you? Possession is in nine-tenths of the law when you don't know what you have and you aren't using it. Did it ever occur to you that maybe this object isn't being used for a reason, said Liam. All three Angstroms looked at Liam in such frank confusion that Manchu had to concentrate not to laugh. He cleared his throat. I think what my colleague is suggesting is that since London, the world has become less stable. But the activation and use of a powerful artifact always presents a risk. In these times, it could be devastating. Karen shrugged. Oh, we're quite aware of that she said, but we're confident that we won't be affected. Manchu frowned. The entire world could be affected. Then that will be a problem for the world, won't it? She smiled and sipped her drink. Manchu remembered why he hated rich people so much. One advantage of traveling with your girlfriend instead of with your boyfriend, at least when you were a girl, was that when staying in a hostel that segregated men into one bunkhouse and women into another, you didn't actually get split up. Of course, you were still sharing a room with a dozen backpackers from all over the world, which wasn't exactly conducive to intimacy. Although, in this context, Sal was less worried about witnesses objecting to homosexuality than she was that a public display of affection would be taken as an invitation to join in. Even if Sal's pansexual orgy days had not been firmly behind her, she got the feeling that Grace wouldn't want to share. And so, as Grace worked on translating the busker's song from Chinese into English, Sal made light conversation and asked the other travelers about their experiences. Several had heard the placemat story. A couple knew where you could go in India to get really good shrooms, but no one knew anything about magical artifacts hidden in the mountains. Finally, Grace joined Sal and tapped her on the shoulder. Let's go outside, she said. I want to look at the stars. The way she said it, look at the stars, was obviously code for something else. Although from the smirks of the backpackers who had overheard, she was sure they hadn't guessed it was code for I found a lead. Sal smiled and gave Grace a peck on the lips to put the seal on the other's misapprehensions. Great idea, she said. Let me get my coat. Once they were under the aforementioned stars, Grace showed Sal her translation. The song told the story of a bodhisattva who went into the mountain seeking enlightenment and found something called the eternal flower. Sal read through the translation twice, then looked at Grace. Okay, I get that he went into the mountains and found a magical object, but so did the guy in the placemat. It seems like kind of a theme. Why do you think this is a clue? Grace pointed to the second verse. You see the line there where he approached the mountain that looked like a scarred cat? Yeah, 
Look at the mountain behind you. Sal did. Thanks to the lack of light pollution, the silhouette of the peak still stood out against the starlight, even in the dark. She wasn't sure she would have called it a one-eared cat on her own, but with the suggestion of the lyric, the resemblance was uncanny. Still, could be a coincidence. Best lead we have. We should call Asante, see if she can dig up anything else. Sal nodded. But not from the hostel. It's not that I think the Swedes have spies, but... Actually, said Grace, I've been thinking. Oh? We did haul this camping equipment all the way from London. Grace had a very expressive left eyebrow when she chose to use it to its full extent. Sal smiled. I like the way you think. You are listening to Book Burners. Created and produced by Realm, your portal to another world. Listen away. Hey there, this is Justin Bartha. I made a funny new podcast, King of the Egg Cream. It has the greatest cast in the history of podcasts with actors like Louis Black. I'm torn by my feelings for two women. Bobby Cannavale. You can eat it, or if someone hits you, you can put it on your cut. Melanie Linsky. I wonder what these marvelous things are that look just like boiled chicken feet. Jason Ritter. I can break things and pick locks and kill people. Michael Stuhlbarg. The whole point is to inspire people that they should make themselves better. Ari Grainer. No, don't whet its appetite. What are you, an idiot? Me, Justin Bartha. That's not just any egg cream, that's a Lemke's special. And all narrated by the hilarious Richard Kind. This is the story of Harry Dalowitz. And how he rose from nothing to become New York's King of the Egg Cream. So if you like funny true stories, come listen to King of the Egg Cream, available wherever you get your podcasts. Book Burners is created by Max Gladstone and written by Max Gladstone, Margaret Dunlap, Murr Lafferty, Andrea Phillips, and Brian Francis Slattery. Executive produced by Molly Barton and Julian Yap. Performed by Exe Sands. Audio production by Amanda Rose Smith, with additional editing by Corey Barton. Original theme by Hashem Asadolahi, featuring Jody Redditch Ferber and mixed by Justin Morrell. Cover art by Annie Wu. Executive in charge for Realm, Mary Asadolahi. Find more shows like Book Burners by following Realm on Apple Podcasts. Spotify or at realm.fm.